recovery does exist. Um, uh, who am I? Well, I'm Chris Stewart. What am I? Um, I am... Uh, I'm MD of Minding Minds. We are a uh, mental health first aid um, instructor, uh, instructing company. So we, uh, we, our mission is to get into corporates and to give them, uh, give some of their guys the tools to be able to help to look after the mental health within the companies and, and the great you know the the great thing was before all of this started was that that um, we did have a lot of companies who were um, really really um, infused about this because they came to understand that actually they, we we need people's physical health to be good so we also need their mental health to be good. Um, uh, so a bit about me, um, yeah, a bit about me. Yes, please. Yeah, okay, a bit about me. Um, So uh, I'm in recovery. I got sober in 2005 after, I guess, probably 20 years in hindsight of, of, um, I would say, problematic drinking, moving into drastic and and life-threatening drinking um and as we were saying you know i was stuck in that old kind of internal lie of of um of addiction that that said you can't change this it's always going to be like this it always has been like this you're not worth it so why bother um but but got into recovery in 2005 um and very quickly with the support of the fellowship got myself back into kind of meaningful work after thinking you know you're 40 with no real worker in a hostel I can remember thinking that that would be just amazing but but as you know recovery is kind of better than that and took me to to different and kind of more exciting places I I I was um lucky enough to work with um, Turning Point and the NHS to set up um, the first alcohol-specific um, treatment um, programme for West Berkshire to, to open that, and that's now up and running. But then when I came back in 2017, I, I saw um, the, the opportunity to um, work in mental health, um, which is close to my heart, um, you know, I drank on top of um, uh, a misdiagnosis of bipolar disorder um, uh, and I drank on that for 20 years. And when I got sober, um, so the drinking went away, but I kind of got sober and went, oh, my God, I've still got bad mental health. <laughs> so, you know, I've been on a journey for the past 15 years Um coming to a kind of level of acceptance and treatment for my own mental health. So it seemed perfect to go and do this stuff. So there's a very long-winded introduction to me. No, no, it's fabulous. I really appreciate you giving us that information because as we've talked about in the past, um, you know, stopping drinking and drug taking is really just the beginning of the journey. Absolutely. Um, And um, often... 
um, when you take the drink and the drugs away or the dysfunctional behaviour, um, you're left with underlying issues as to the reasons why some people may have drank or used drugs in the first place. For me, it was anxiety. So I used to suffer yeah. a lot with anxiety as a little girl, very anxious little girl, scared. I wasn't sure what I was scared of, but there was never really an arena to, to discuss fear um, because growing up in a Mancunian working class yeah. home, you know, you, nobody did fear or or tears so um I, I found dr- drink primarily and that was what sort of sort of anaesthetized that feeling for a little while mm. um so so tell us a little bit more I'm really interested in um mental well-being because yeah. obviously like you I also work in the uh, corporate sector so I work one-to-one mainly with um yeah. high-functioning addicts yeah um, and I get brought in usually um, to work quite closely for an intense period with a um, director, CEO, whoever's got the problem, yeah. um, and try and integrate them into a recovery process. Um, and just, yeah, I mean, that's interesting. I think it's really misunderstood that, that you know, um, Somebody, I heard somebody describe kind of mental health and addiction as a, an equal opportunities mongrel in the fact that it can affect anybody at any level. Um, and, and actually, the higher up the, the, the ladder you are, the more stresses that you're dealing with. And actually, the, the, it, I, like you, have worked with pe- many people at kind of board level who have got drug and alcohol problems and also struggling with kind of depression. And, and, you know, I really relate to the, the anxiety as a, as a kid um, uh, and for is to drink on top yeah. because it's socially acceptable. Uh, it's wine o'clock. I belong to, uh, uh, so, you know, a lot of, like we all do, but HR groups and exec groups and whatever on, on, um, on Facebook. And, um, you know, during that three-week period where it was all madness going off with COVID, all I was seeing at five o'clock were pictures of G&T and wine and the rest of it. And I'm not here to demonise drink, but it's just that people need to recognise that actually, you know, it's a really, really slippery slope. Yeah. Um, and I, I think coming out the other side of this, we're going to have a lot of travel. Going back to what you were saying initially about um the issues of of stress and anxiety and mental health within you know the workplace and within that that upper echelon i mean just just to explain the idea of mental health first aid itself it it started in 2000 back in australia they come up with some great ideas the aussies um and was basically a, a lady who worked in 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 the healthcare system who came back and said, look, I keep seeing people getting saved from cardiac arrest that the, you know, major bleeds have been staunched and people are bandaged properly and the rest of it. Why aren't we doing this with mental health? With mental health? So the idea of mental health first aid was kind of brought, brought up. Um, Japanese like, um, uh, Ian W, uh, sorry, Ian Y, Ernst and Young, you know, they're up to kind of training one in 10 of their workforce because they've recognized that it's not just the right thing to do. Yes, we should be looking after our staff, but it's the smart thing to do too. You know, we work very closely with um, 
Yo Sushi, and they they dropped their absenteeism rate by 25% and stopped their staff churn by 9%. Now, that that last figure, if you put that in front of an exec board, suddenly there is prick up because it's costing them 20 grand a pot to replace these people. Yeah. So to go back to, to but I think the, the, I mean, it's a kind of crazy notion that we, you can't have good health if you haven't got good mental health. You can be physically fit and depressed. And if you're depressed and physically fit, you're not well. And this idea that we somehow need to, these two things need to be separate uh, to me is, is crazy. You know, we, we need to be understanding that, that um, mental health is integral to our whole being. Um, and that's kind of the mission that we're on is to be able to open up the conversations, give people some of the tools that are there. We're not turning people into clinicians. What we're turning people into is somebody who's got the information and the ability to have a conversation with somebody that says, this is okay we know where to signpost you to and we'll hold your hand while we do that. Um, and it's just opening that up, um, you know, and, and, and going back to, to mental health and drug and alcohol use, I think they're conjoined twins. You know, I haven't, there, there are some people who get sober and, and everything's kind of normal mental health wise, but, but in my experience, just about, you know, but the majority of people still have underlying issues that they drank on top of or are actually caused by the drinking itself. You know, we know that prolonged alcohol use is going to increase your anxiety levels and also your ability to cope with stress, you know. Um, so, yeah, the, I mean, that to me is the kind of the, the mission of, of where we're at is to make it easier to talk about it and understand that people have it and people get well, you know, I've got a, you know, bipolar is one of the more serious diagnosis of mental health first aid, uh, of, sorry, of mental health. Um, you know, but I used to live in a night shelter in Bath and I ended up living in Barbados and that's not here to say, wow, look at Chris. It's about going, anything is possible you know everything is possible and I think we as people in recovery are in with a great advantage in knowing that actually um the principles that we apply to our life um, are what make our life um more meaningful and more purpose-led and um you know more more generous hearted and it's almost like we have that insight once you get into recovery and you apply those principles to your life and yeah. I think that's the beautiful thing about mental health first aid is um, I did the training myself some years ago when it first yeah. came out in the UK and to be honest it it makes perfect sense mm. it's like one in four and these are the figures that we know of so these are the ones that actually filled the questionnaire in one yeah. in four of us is affected by me or yeah. in our close circle. Those yeah. are the figures that we're aware of. So the reality yeah. is going to be a lot more than that, I, I, I reckon. Absolutely, because, because we, you know, we're trying to measure something that, that people don't want to talk about. 
yeah. you know, we, like you say, it's one in four of the general population, one in six of the working uh, of the workforce in theory. So whether that's people who are unable to, you know, that that's lower because there's some people who are unable to work because of it or it's affecting either younger or older people, you know, but we also, you know, there's some shameful figures in there as well that, that you know, suicide is the biggest killer of males under the age of 45. I, I mean that. I mean that's a shocking statistic. If you turn around and say, you know, uh, uh, it, and you're like, oh my god, you know, what bigger than car crashes? Yeah, yeah, like five times bigger than car crashes every year, and way more, way bigger than accidents in the workplace. So, yeah. you know, I, I think I don't know if it's gonna be or if it if it's planned to be, but I personally think. Um, mental well-being in the workplace if it's delivered by you know your good self or some yeah. other um trainer or it it's essential it's like you know we're there with the um machines just in case yeah. somebody has a heart attack i think and i think personally as well i think the people that are best placed to become uh, mental health champions um are people with the lived experience you know we know that we know yeah, that. absolutely. And you know, we specifically um, aim to employ people who have uh, experience of mental health themselves. And that's not necessarily like me suffering with a condition myself, but it's also important to have people on board who understand what it's like to live with somebody who's suffering with depression or stress and or anxiety. Because as we have you, now it's the yeah, and it's the same. It's the same with um, with mental health. You know, you've got the one person in the middle that's suffering with it, but then you've got the ten people around them that are the suffering with them, if you like, feeling powerless and under and not understanding what they can and what they can't do and what they should be feeling. Um, in recovery, and and you know, it was critical to my own personal journey, um, but. What would you say? I mean, there was lots and lots of things that I had to change living with an alcoholic. Um, I, I didn't know none of them. I, I thought my behaviour as a loving partner was um, made perfect sense. And it was only when, when I started getting some support, proper support from people with a lived experience um, um, of, of helping family members get well, did I realise that actually everything that I was doing was wrong. You know, yeah. so, so would you say that that's very similar with um, mental health? Yeah, I think I think what the the, the most important precept precepts for 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 both is an understanding that you are powerless over the other person, and you are powerless over the illness. Yeah, and that you cannot wake up in the morning going, "I'm going to go and fix them," but what am I going to do today to fix them? Yeah. Uh, or second judge what might be right or bad or good or what should I do in my day and before you know it for for both the the illness ends up running the other person's day yeah. it ends up running their behavior it ends up running what they do and they don't do um, and they stop looking after themselves you know one of the greatest things I always say to people is is that you know there is a reason that there's an instruction on the airline card that says put your own oxygen mask on first. Yeah. yeah? Because yeah. if you're not doing that, how the hell are you going to help the other person? 
and that that applies to you know that applies to to this uh, in exactly the same way. You need to look after you, and if you look after you, you stand a better chance of looking after the other people. And by all, it was to disappear, and all of a sudden, I'm left on my own drinking, unable to blame anybody else for it because there was nobody else there. Yeah. They had to withdraw for their own sanity out again and left me to it. Yeah. And for that, it was it was that that kind of, I don't know, if you show, the same with somebody with depression, if you show, show somebody the tools that are there for them to recover, if they won't go to the doctor to go and get any help, if they won't access one of the myriad of support mechanisms there are online, we are so lucky we live in this age where we can dip into, you know, depression and bi bipolar Zoom meetings in America I can access. I can do whatever, you know, there's loads of stuff out there. But it, but if the person is, isn't doing that, you can't make them and you certainly shouldn't feel responsible. Yeah, absolutely. So if if there's anybody watching this and they're living with somebody who who's struggling with mental health, what would be your top tips? I mean, obviously, I, you know, I know you're not a doctor and I know you're not, you know, you'd always say go to the doctors um, first and foremost because that's really important. Um, but if you were going to give, as a family member living with somebody who, who might be displaying um, mental health issues, what would be your top tips as a starting point? So... It depends on what we're talking about. I mean, if if I talk a, a minute, say, about um, anxiety, I think anxiety is a very misunderstood and quite glib term that, you know, you and I say we, we were anxious as children. I don't know about you, but it was an all-encompassing, very debilitating um, experience that meant that the world for me was an incredibly scary place. Um, uh, and very difficult to deal with. Um, and I think anxiety... Amazing chemicals internally. I'm very creative. It's almost like a, a, a gift that we can pay forward. But like you said, you know, I think the beginning of the journey is admitting that there is a problem. I think that's critical. A lot yeah. of people don't want to be mentally ill. It's like, no... You know, I don't want to be, I don't want to have depression. So they think that they can just dismiss it. Yeah. And it's not as simple as that, is it? Yeah, and I'll just, yeah, I'll just work my way through it and pretend that it's not there. Um, you know, um, the the reality is, is that, you know, you get full-blown depression. It's a bit like flu. You're not getting out of bed. You're not showering. You know, you're not doing your normal day-to-day tasks and it becomes incredibly debilitating. So, you know, to catch this stuff early on, you know, to be able to say, okay, I've had a persistent low mood, you know, for at least two weeks now, if not more, then maybe I need to do something about it. Now, also accepting that, that what we're going through at the moment you know, and one of my greatest fears at the moment is is how are we going to look after the guys who are on the front line at the moment? You know, I've got, I've got a friend, if not much. At the end of this, when that stops, my greatest fear is that there isn't going to be the capacity there to be able to look after these guys, yes. because when that that when that settles and the quiet comes 
for me, that's the danger period. That's when we're going to start seeing PTSD. We're going to start seeing depression. We're going to start seeing anxiety because, you know, the human body and mind isn't built to go through what these guys are going through at the moment. And they're operating in trauma, aren't they, at the moment? They're operating on, on adrenaline that actually doesn't, that, that's been created because of the, the, the yeah. awful situation that they're in. Um, yeah, no, I, I really hope and pray that the NHS and all of these other, because it's not just the NHS, you know, it's the emergency services, it's, it's you know... Yeah. People, even in Tesco's, you know, frontline yeah. staff in Tesco's, bin men, you know, these people are dealing with a f- on, on the front fear. line. Yeah, yeah, and they're operating in fear. They're operating in fear on a daily basis, whether you're stacking a shelf in Tesco's, worried about whether you're going to take it home and give it to your mum. Yeah, yeah. Whether you're a nurse on the front line, whether you're the ambulance driver, whether you're the girl in the nursing home. Yeah. yeah. I know, it's awful at the moment. Well, just, they don't have protective clothing. It's like unbelievable really it's terrible to be able to support these guys afterwards i'm just so fearful you know obviously having a kind of mental health mind on it all that that that, like you say once the adrenaline stops that for me is the real danger time whether it's them picking up the booze to cope with it whether it's slipping into depression ptsd or the rest of it i did think about checking out checking out a um petition to the uh, associate you know british association of counselors to see whether we could get some people to pledge a few hours to help these people i think that's a really good idea i think or, or you know what i mean i'd be interested in you sharing as well that, that the zoom meetings that you were talking about in america you yeah. know even if somebody just set up something like that here you yeah know, I mean, we, we're so blessed, again, to, to have recovery and the fellowships that we're involved in. I mean, yeah. they've been online for three weeks. We've got support day and night. You can actually go to a fellowship, a 12-step fellowship meeting every hour if you want. Yeah. You know, um, from various fellowships. But wouldn't it be amazing if somebody thought, you know what, we need to set this up in preparation for the aftermath? Yeah. Absolutely. I think I think for, for us, you know, trying to find a way that we can support the we know that we know what's coming. Um, so let's try and find, you know, a safety net for them yes. that's able to catch as many as possible. Um, the other side of it. I think I think it's a great idea. So we, maybe we ought to um go away, I would think about how we could do something and um maybe try and get something together. I think it would be brilliant. Put our heads together, and do you know what? 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 I've discovered um, in this period. I mean, I've known this for a long time. Social innovation is going to be yeah. um, absolutely paramount during this time, but after this time too. And when I say social innovation, I mean people thinking outside the box. Yeah. You know, I've been. I've been acting productively in in my my work you know i mean i've been i've set up a helpline service and online um zoom meetings face-to-face zoom meetings you know all of these things i've never offered before but now it's it's needed more than ever and social innovation afterwards is going to be critical because there's going to be so many people who who have lost the jobs who who do need to help themselves but also wouldn't it be great if we could you know 
use social innovation as a way to give people a purpose-led career, you know, mm-hmm. where they could actually go, yeah, yeah. What? all of this experience that we've been through won't go to waste then. I think that if we use this experience properly and this situation, um, that some amazing things can come from it. I really do believe that in my mm-hmm. heart. I really do believe. It's, it's really funny you say that. I mean, you know, once I'd got over the the initial, you know, we had a massively full order book for the rest of this year. And, you know, after two years of building the company, it was it was looking at, once I'd got over the fact that all of that had disappeared, like, like you, I am a great believer that, you know, you, for anything to happen, you need a vacuum first, yeah? You need a void for something to come out of it. And that's, it feels like the whole country's been given space, is being given space to look at itself, to be with its family, to reevaluate, um, I think, the, just the whole, whole world, let alone this country. Um, it, uh, and out of this, I think really good stuff will come. And I'm not minimising the fears of, of of what people are going through or the struggles or the rest of it, but but there's got to be that hope that you know what something something's going to come good out of this. Yeah, know? it can only be that. Um, I mean, there's been some awful awful situations, some terribly sad losses of life and um but from it i mean i've been uh, apart from from the work that i do in the corporate sector i run a um, project in the community which uh, is an introduction an introduction to social enterprise so i've been yeah i've been helping people for for the last seven years in recovery um I offer people in recovery a free place on my on my um, program, um, where I teach them about setting up social enterprises, so socially innovative businesses. Yeah. Um, and I know that people with a lived experience of change at the heart of any business is is like a living, beating heart. It's like it's the lifeblood that can run through it, and it's so attractive, and it, it offers not just attraction to people who may need that support but also or, or employment but also it destigmatizes all of the the things oh, that yeah. you know it's so important not just recovery from um, substance um, misuse but you know recovery from mental health you mm. know, for, for us to see that actually people can do some amazing things and set up some amazing creations from it from um that journey Mm. I mean, at the end of we so the the full two day course of the mental health first aid course, you know, I I deliver a course and I deliver it as a professional and we do whatever. But but my my closing remarks always are is that you need to understand. You know, we've looked at bipolar disorder and this and the rest of it. I said you need to understand that recovery is probable and possible because this guy used to live in a night shelter, was a you know, had bipolar, was this and the other. I do this now, my own company, I've lived in Barbados, because this message of recovery, both from mental health and from addiction, um, it's not going to, you know, stuff's not going to change unless we're out there going, this is possible. Absolutely. And people Um, need examples, don't they? They need to see that actually, I don't know about you, but I mean, I was, I had very stereotypical images in my head and Mm. um, conveniently 
um, of what an alcoholic addict was, you know. And for me, stereotypically, um, it was somebody living on the park bench. It was somebody living, you know, or in a tent or, you know, somebody who had no family. Um, I, I had very clear pictures of what that um, addict, active addict looked like. Mm. And the fact of the matter is, is since I've worked in this field, I've realised that actually, and the statistics show that that is the minority of people yeah. with addiction problems, that yeah. the majority of people with addiction problems are actually high functioning and yeah. still in employment. Yeah. And that, that was the, you know, the majority of, of the, you know, it was interesting when we moved from a, um, uh, uh, a drug only treatment service where it was 80% guys, 20% women, virtually all unemployed. Once we opened the alcohol service, we looked at the figures at the end of six months and it was 55% women, 90% in work. Yeah. yeah. And virtually all of the 45% of the guys were in work themselves as well. So it was all, uh, it was mainly wine o'clock drinkers that were starting at five in the evening as soon as they got home from school and were drinking around the clock. There were, you know, there were others that were kind of, you know, drinking more, but virtually all were what, as you would say, were high functioning. Um, yeah. And, and again, my experience of volunteering in the community um, is that services, particularly, I don't know about anywhere else, but particularly in Brighton, weren't set up to be as inviting to the high functioning yeah. addict. Yeah. Um, you know, it was um, very much aimed at uh, marginalised groups. Mm. So, um, I mean, even still, I get calls all of the time. I don't know what people think. I think people think I've run a treatment centre of some variety, which I don't. Um, <laughs> but people ring me up constantly who are high functioning, who, who are still in employment. Um just crying out for help, not got a clue where to go. You know, they say, oh, I've been to, I've been told that I need to go to my local drug and alcohol service. Um, I've looked at it from the outside and it's terrifying, you know. Exactly. So, you know. That, a that's- massive bar to, to, to treatment, um, you know, that you're asking people to walk into a prescribing agency that's doing needle exchange and all of the rest of the stuff. Um, and they're, they're going, well, I'm not, I'm not this, you know, and we're really stopping people. I used to do an awful lot of outreach in doctor surgeries because it meant I could get to people, you know, without having to drag them in. Yeah. Absolutely. So I work with doctors, um, GP surgeries. Um, I've just actually got a small pot of funding from the clinical commissioning group um, to deliver um, what I call discover recovery. So it's an early intervention group, which um, we invite people from all the different fellowships to come along and and give um, testimonies as to what worked for them. And um, we invite people, you know, to come along with no obligation to signing up for anything or, you know, it's about hearing a message of hope, isn't it? I mean, that's what worked for me. And and we developed this, um, this idea off the back of um, recovery, you know, it has to be made attractive and it has to be, you know, the story, the people that we invite to come along are people that those, the audience can relate to. Sure. You know, so the people that are going to the GP surgery, um, are generally, you know, um, a, a different type of person than the ones that would access um, sure. 
mobile services. So there needs to be balance, doesn't there? There needs to be um, services and provision available for everybody. And it's about that ability to get, you know, I don't know about you, but, the, the you know, I personally, I'd been... I internally told myself for probably five years before I got into recovery that I was an alcoholic, but I actually had no idea what that meant. You know, and one of the revelations for for me when I came in, I can remember, (laughs) I can remember chatting to one similarly high functioning guy who'd been in paid counseling for three and a half years. And I sat down with him for half an hour and he turned around to me and he went, so I'm an alcoholic. And I said, well, it would appear so from the way that you've answered these questions. And he was like, oh, my God, I've just spent X amount, thousands of pounds because I didn't understand what was wrong with me. Yeah. And for me, it's as simple as, you know, once I started drinking, I couldn't stop, yeah. you know, unless I could I could put the brakes on occasionally and this, that and the other. But generalizing, if I started, I couldn't stop. And when I stayed stopped, I couldn't stop starting again, exactly. you know. Exactly. It, it, and it was like, oh, is it a simple thing? Yeah, that I have this stuff that goes on with my body when I, you know, I could never understand what I called light, lightweight drinkers who would have a couple and say, I need to go home now because the wife's cooked supper. Yeah. And I'm like, but we could be on a train in an hour and going to London. What are you talking about? And this is a Tuesday night. Yeah. You know, I, I just didn't understand the concept of, of not, taking it to the nth degree once I'd started doing it no I have friends like that and I remember when I first got sober um one of my friends who I love dearly um invited me to um somebody's 60th birthday I think it was I was really nervous about going because obviously everybody was drinking it was a hoi folloi party limousines and all the rest of it I'm really nervous about going um and I remember for the whole evening, I was absolutely nervous. I shouldn't have gone really because I was very early in recovery mm. and uh, I was really quite apprehensive. But I, I wanted the world to see that, you know, I'd nailed this. Yeah. So I went and tortured myself. And, and I remember um, stood with my friend all evening. And the, the one thing that fascinated me all night, well, I was obsessed with it all night, actually, was the fact that she had um, a glass of red wine. Yeah. And she had that much in the glass. And all night, she had that much in the glass. She didn't even take a sip. Mm-hmm. She didn't refill it. She just walked around with this glass. And it was like, a, I was like, I kept looking at her, I kept thinking, I'm not going to say anything, I'm not going to say. But all I could think about was, what's wrong with this? What? And at the end of the night, I said to her, is, is that the same glass that you started off with? And she said, yeah, she said, it doesn't really bother me. And I was like, you are unbelievable. Yeah. And she said, even, yeah. It's weird, isn't it? That, but even even now, you know, I'll be in a restaurant and a, and a couple will leave a table and there's a third of a bottle of wine left and I want to call the matron of D over to stop them. <laughs> They've obviously forgotten something. I mean, it, and it just, you know, to me, that, that we, we well know that, you know, uh, for me, once an alcoholic, always an alcoholic, is that I still have that kind of internal dialogue that the radar that picks up on booze, um, even though it's, you know, 15 odd years since, since I last drank some. Do you know, it's, it's so interesting. I mean, I think that's healthy too. I do think yeah. that's healthy. Yeah. Um, my kids would probably beg to differ because they think, um, 
they they think the work that I do, and obviously the the service because I'm of service in the community too, in the yeah. different fellowships, and also in my my church community. Um, but my kids my kids are always rolling their eyes at me. And so yesterday I went to Sainsbury's with them. And honest to God, Chris, we walked into Sainsbury's and the whole, as you were walking into Sainsbury's, the whole of the right side of the store, the first aisle, was ram-packed with like shelves and shelves and shelves of various types of alcohol. And I was like, oh my gosh, look at that booze. I mean, it was like, it was positively encouraging people offers are on you know this was on and it, and it wasn't just the one aisle it was like aisles and aisles of it yeah and i thought yeah. you know what what chance have people got well it's on you know it's the western world's um drug of choice alcohol you know and it it uh, as we know you know it was i think it was professor nutt the guy who was the drugs are for the labor government he put alcohol through the same 16 criteria that we use to class other drugs in you know like heroin and whatever and he put put alcohol through the same 16 criteria and he said it came out as a class a with more social damage than heroin oh gosh for sure so, so to to you know you don't walk into an A&E on a Friday night, yeah, and get millions of stoners in there. You know, I'm not not saying that any drugs are better or whatever. It's just to understand that it, the social damage from alcohol is enormous. It is absolute. And you know something? I was talking to my friend yesterday, Denise Welsh, who we did an interview yeah, with. Yeah. And she's she's been, um, I think she's coming up for 18 years um, in recovery, oh, yeah, yeah um, very soon. Yeah. And um, she said, or it might be eight years, I can't remember. It's one, one of the two, but she's a good friend. And she said, do you know what? Alcohol is one of the only drugs that it's socially unacceptable not to, not to take. Yeah. So, yeah. I, you know, when I first started off in recovery, I didn't tell everybody, um, I'm my husband was in an acute psychiatric hospital at the time. I wasn't, yeah. I, it wasn't sort of like top of, top of my list. Yeah. I was like nervous wreck. Um, or the amounts of conversations and um, lies that I had to take to yeah. uh, tell to people, you know, like they'd say, well, have a drink, Claire. And I'd be like, no, no, it's okay. Thanks. I'll just have um, water. And they'd be like, what's wrong with you? Mm-hmm. Are you okay? Are you on antibiotics? Have you got some sort of infection? It's like the questions people ask you. Like, if I offer if I offer somebody a cigarette and they say no, I don't turn around and say, "Would you like a pipe?" Yeah, cigar maybe, roll up. It's like yeah. really, I don't want to drink. Thank you. You know, and this this kind of foisting it on people and turning around and almost being mistrustful of people. Mind you, if anybody I knew stopped drinking when I was drinking, I didn't want to know. Oh, I wouldn't because the I, because the idea that it might well be possible or something that I ought to do, it was like, oh, sorry, mate, you've left left the reservation. You're not allowed back in. Yeah, I wouldn't have sat next to you. In fact, I would have stayed really clear yeah. of you. And I know now that actually the re- and I did this on many occasions because what I didn't know was that Kev, when he was in Coronation Street, he yeah. had quite a few people um, who were already in recovery, but they weren't open about it. So. Yeah. 
so we'd go out and I'd say to them, um, this one lady in particular, I'd say, would you like a drink? And she'd say, no, thanks. Like, oh, actually, I'll have a, a pint of Diet Coke. And I'd yeah. say, oh, have a, have a triple vodka in yeah. it. And she'd be like, no, I'm all right. I'll just have a pint of Diet Coke. And I'd be like, oh, come on, don't be so boring. Yeah. And she'd say, no, no. And she never said, I'm in recovery. Yeah. And I honestly, I tortured this poor woman every time I saw her. Because what I now know was the fact that she didn't drink actually highlighted how much I did drink. Yeah. And I did not want to be sat next to this woman mm. whilst I was downing my triple vodkas and Cokes because no. her and her pints of Diet Coke yeah. were just embarrassing me. But it's all right, when you got to the bar doing the, doing the round, you always order your own first so you can drink that while the rest are being poured and then get another one just to the end. Ah, uh, there you go. You see, tricks of the alcoholic, yeah. You always get yourself a sneaky one first. Yeah. Everyone out. And then by the time that, that's come round, you go, oh, okay. Yeah. I used to drink half pints of wine. Yeah. Uh, and, and tell everybody it was wine and soda. Yeah. Yeah, it wasn't. It was like two large glasses of wine in a glass. <laughs> <laughs> but we were normal and you came what you, you did you hear you say that you came in through the family fellowship i came in through the family fellowship because obviously i wasn't that bad no obviously obviously wasn't that bad <laughs> i only started drinking on a thursday uh, and finished on a maybe a tuesday or wednesday so in my head that was a weekend drinker yeah. um and and i never drank vodka Oh no, yeah. I never did. But I only drank vodka really on special occasions. But I had all these, all these absolute like conditions in my own head. But yeah. because because I was married to an alcoholic, it was a very high pedestal I put myself on, and and it was a it was a long drop. I'll tell you when I fell off that pedestal. But sure. I used to sit pointing the finger at my poor husband, blaming yeah. him for the way my life had turned out. Well, I mean, sadly enough, my 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 first wife and my my son's mum, who was a nurse, um, she uh, I I got this stuff early and was chaotic by the time I was thirty, and we split up when I was thirty, and unfortunately, she passed away from this because I never thought she was that much of a bad drinker. Well, she wasn't when you compare it to what I was doing at the time, but then remove me from the household and all of a sudden you're left with one alcoholic. And that's, I think, the difficulty that people have, isn't it? When somebody, a partner gets into recovery, then you've only got your own drinking to look at. Oh, and it's it's terrifying. I mean, I, I, I'm so grateful that I did come in through the Family Fellowship. Sure. Because it was only through them teaching me about learning to love myself first and foremost, and really sort of drilling that in, um, that 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 I actually started to care enough about myself to listen differently when I went to those meetings. Because for a long, long time, I went to the um, family groups, waiting for them to give me the secret how to stop Kevin drinking, yeah. um, and I was sit there with bated breath. And, and nobody ever did. Nobody ever told me anything. They just shared their own experience, strength and hope. But what happened to me was the more the more I went, the more encouraged I was to, to start loving myself. And then when you start loving yourself, you start to hear things differently. And I started to hear um, people talking about how their wives drinking um, was really, really, you know, chaotic. And, this, and I started to identify with 
the partners that were being talked sure. about. And I used to sit in meetings thinking, I'm sure, I'm sure this isn't right. I, yeah. I don't think I should be identifying with his wife, who's actually an al- alcoholic. Yeah. And this little old lady I used to sit next to, she used to sit knitting. And I remember nudging her one day at the end of the meeting going, oh, God, that fella again, talking about his wife, what she's like when she's drunk. Yeah. He could be talking about me. And, and, and trying to make light of it, you know, like, so she yeah. would laugh with me. And she didn't. She just put her knitting needles down and she looked at me and she went, how long have you been coming, Claire, to these meetings? And I went, for nearly two years. And she went, yeah. She said, and for nearly two years you've been coming and you've been blaming your husband for the way your life's turned out. She said, because he's got a drink problem. Um, and so I said, yeah. I said, he's still got a drink problem. He's a pain in the backside. And she went, listen to me. She said, every time you point that finger at your husband and want to blame him for the way your life's turned out, she said, there's three fingers pointing yeah. at you and yeah. one at the solution. She said, you're the only one you can do anything about and you can only do that with outside help. She said, now get your act together. She didn't actually say get your act together. She said, get your shit together. She said, if you're identifying with that man's wife, she said, that man's wife is an alcoholic. She said, you need to go to Alcoholics Anonymous and you need to go and listen. She said, because it sounds to me like you could have a problem yourself. It's amazing, isn't it? I knew, though. I did know, you know, deep down I knew. But she was the first person, I think, that ever told me the truth. Yeah. And the first time that you'd been able to hear it as well. And that's that's the thing, isn't it? You know, I I heard the saying, you know, I I first came into a fellowship when I was 30 and I hung around for three months and I kind of nodded in all the right places and laughed at what I thought were the right jokes and then ran the hell out as soon as the meeting had finished. And uh, after three months feeling very well, I thought I'd kind of test the test the water as to the um, philosophy that is the first drink that does the damage. So I had a half pint of beer and do you know what? Nothing happened. And two days later, when I had two pints, nothing happened. Yeah. And I, I was sure that I'd kind of cracked it. But a week later, when I went into blackout, lost my job because I'd been abusive at work, lost the house that I lived in and ended up in a night shelter Yeah. at that point. And unfortunately, that half pint cost me a decade. It cost me my 30s because I didn't fall back in through the doors um, oh. until 10 years later. When I heard the same stuff, but I heard it, if that makes sense. Yeah. I heard it and I went, oh my God. What, so I, I, I just don't drink one day at a time. That's all I have to worry about. And that's that idea of a solution for any situation. You know, I've got chronic depression. How do I deal with it? We, I deal with it a day at a time. If I need to, I deal with it an hour at a time. Yeah. yeah. And I'm kind to myself and I do the things that suggested like having a routine taking some time, doing some meditation, doing some prayer, investing in something creative, you know. Why should I learn something where it's never going to go anywhere? Well, you don't know, so just do it. Go find something new every day. We have the internet. Go find something new every day. You know, at the moment, I'm posting a new artist that I find every day, and it makes me go and look at new art every day. So I share that instead of sharing my top ten albums. Because everybody's a bit bored with ABBA revival. Um, I'm really keen on like sharing about the the amazing champions that are emerging. 
yeah. from this whole um this well, whole that lady in New Zealand. Oh, I love her. Oh, I've the, not heard of New, her. Well, the it? New Zealand Prime Minister is just an absolute. Oh, um, yeah. She was just incredible how she dealt with the mass shooting and then how she's dealt with this. And I've got friends who are literally locked down in New Zealand because they had a command that came out and said, where you are is where you stay. I don't care whether you're a New Zealander or anywhere. If you're in a hotel, you stay in there until this is over. Um, but yeah, she's running around, running breastfeeding in Parliament and just doing an amazing job and has just turned around today and said, all of us, all of the Cabinet and me are taking a 20% pay cut in solidarity with you guys that are suffering oh. today so there are some amazing female leaders out there at the moment doing yeah. some great jobs when there aren't such good jobs being done by some male ones not talking about countries yeah um, no no but, yeah. yeah i know who you mean now she is amazing and and of all the places new zealand is the one place that i would quite happily move to yeah um, and it's pretty much influenced by the fact that she's such an amazing lady. I would love to just spend some time with her. Yeah, um, her, just incredible. And I'll tell you who else has really, really um, lit my heart up. Is it Captain Tom? Oh, Captain isn't he Tom? amazing? Oh, isn't that? And his daughter. <laughs> his daughter's amazing. Oh, I haven't seen his daughter. Have you not seen that? She's the one that sits next to him whenever he does an interview. Oh, really? But yeah, she, so she sort of like relays the message to him and he's doing his hundred, um, his hundred lengths yeah. of the drive. He's raised nearly five million pounds. And he only wanted a thousand quid and he keeps going, this is, uh, this is unbelievable. Isn't I love that amazing? It. I mean, they're the people I want to celebrate. Yeah. I know there's a lot of awfulness out there, but do you know yeah. what? I just think... The more inspiration we can give one another, the yeah. more hope we can give one another. Yeah. Um, and that was the whole purpose of these talks, really, was just to, to share the good news that, you know what, recovery is possible. And not only is recoverable, recovery possible, but things beyond your wildest dreams are achievable in recovery. Yeah, absolutely. You know, just, just amazing. Some of the things that we get to do, the people that we get to meet, and I... You know, that's not necessarily the rich and famous. It's the, that we get to have insight into people's lives, which is just absolutely mind-blowing that they've done what they've done and they've been where they've been and they've shared what they've shared, you know? Yeah. And that lives that seem to be the most, um, uh, I don't know, um, worth less, or I certainly felt my life was worth less. Um, and I now know that it's worth more. You know, it's not worth less, it's worth more. Um, and that's purely because we get to do this stuff. We get to share hope, you know, on a daily basis. It's not just on here. We get to go and share some hope with people. Yeah. You know, give, give the general public a few of the tools that we were kind of freely given. Yeah, absolutely. And I think that's our responsibility as well as, um, you know, we've been set free for a reason, haven't we, really? And, and I'm like you, I, you know, this stuff spreads into all areas of my life. Yeah. It's like I've been given a gift and the, for me, the gift is given not for me to keep, which I did think for a number of years that it was all all about me. I, I didn't get the memo on that one. <laughs> and then <laughs> some other wise person said to me, you do realise that the reason why you've been given this gift is so you can, you can give hope to the still suffering. And I was like, oh. Mm. And, and I do that in all areas of my life. Where I can, I, I, yeah. I just reach, you know, anybody who reaches out, I'm happy to 
support in any way, shape or form, you know. Um, and and my one of my gifts is connecting people. So, you know, if somebody comes to me and I can't help them, which is generally 99.9% of the time, um, I can connect them to somebody who can. 